Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Well, an important piece of legislation quietly became the law in the state of Illinois on January 1. Another step forward as the legal status of non-human animals gradually rises. To tell us about this, I am very pleased to welcome back to the show attorney Mark Momjian. Mark Momjian is a family lawyer in private practice in Philadelphia. He's an adjunct professor of family law at Villanova University and an adjunct professor of psychiatry at the Drexel University School of Medicine. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Dr. Peter. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so tell us what happened for animals and and their people in Illinois uh, recently that is so noteworthy. Well, on January 1st of this year, uh, the Illinois legislature passed into law a very important um, statute that affects animals in the context of divorce and separation. Uh, The bill was introduced in February of I think 2017, and it was passed unanimously by the Illinois Senate. Uh, Two representatives voted against it in the House, but it had overwhelming support. And what it does is that it allows trial courts in the context of separation or divorce to find if a companion animal is acquired during a marriage, the court has the power to allocate sole or joint ownership of and responsibility for the companion animal. And in issuing an order, it shall consider the well-being of the companion animal. So this is a huge advance and a very positive advance um, in the um, rapidly developing um, specialty of animal law. So what is a companion animal in the eyes of this law? One of the things that's a little frustrating as this law evolves is that there aren't a lot of definitions and there's certainly some gaps in the application of the law. The court, the court doesn't define a companion animal, but it excludes from that definition um, a, a service animal um, under a certain section of the Humane Care for Animals Act in Illinois. So it doesn't affirmatively state what a companion animal is, but it states what a companion animal isn't. Companion animals fall within the classification of dogs and cats for sure, but certainly other animals that provide companionship. As the law develops, there may be challenges to what types of animals fall into these categories, but we certainly would include dogs and cats in that generic category. Even though we buy and sell dogs and cats, uh, or at least you can, we don't like to buy and sell them, uh, clearly Uh, they are no longer equivalent to inanimate objects like a couch. Well, at least in Illinois, thank goodness that's the case. I can't say that's the case in other jurisdictions in the United States. Again, I think the law is evolving in the right direction. Um, I don't even like the idea that companion animals can be classified as marital or separate property. Uh, I think a lot of animal activists and uh, people in the humane um, community, um, you know, regard that language as undignified, and um, we're moving in the right direction at least, by classifying companion animals and their well-being as the central test to determine what's in their best interest. Mark, what are the uh, particular tricky points of contention that you see in uh, divorce or in couples uh, separating who have animals? And uh, how do you think having the law out there might uh, smooth this out a little bit or, or change what happens? 
You know, Dr. Peter, that's, I think you hit the nail on the head um, in the sense that the overwhelming majority of couples who separate or divorce in the United States act responsibly and morally and ethically when it comes to dealing with companion animals. Um, they look at um, whether or not they have children. They look at who has more time to provide care um, and nurturing to a companion animal. And they make the decision that seems to be best not only for the animal, but for the entire family. It's the ugly cases that we read about in the newspaper or watch on TV, the cases where people, you know, are involved in intense litigation over companion animals. And certainly there are times when parties have agreements about how they're going to share custody of a companion animal, and there are breaches of those agreements. So the problem is we haven't tested the boundaries, obviously, on what a companion animal is, but this at least is a recognition by a, you know, a, a very populous state, Illinois, that we're no longer, as you point out, um, are going to regard these as inanimate objects like tables and lamps, and we're going to um, deal with a reality that we need to consider well-being. And I think that type of advance is going to catch fire in other jurisdictions now that you have a populous state like Illinois um, making this huge advance. That's right. The only other state so far uh, that has something similar is Alaska, not even California. We usually uh, lead the country in this sort of, in this sort of stuff. You know, um, I am hoping a state like California will um, break the boundary because when you have the most populous state in the country, there's, there's a legal earthquake that follows after that, and we have to look at a state like that. But you're right, whether there are laws on animal cruelty, animal property, tort claims regarding animals, law regarding farm animals, animals in entertainment, all of these issues are very, very important, but um, I think there is a, um, a very strong movement afoot now that Illinois has crossed this threshold where states are going to modify their divorce statutes and at least give judges the adjudicatory power to decide the well-being of an animal if the parties themselves don't agree. Mark, uh, what's your experience in your state, uh, Pennsylvania, about uh, judges being ready to deal with animal cases? I would say, Dr. Peter, a generation ago, they weren't prepared for it. Uh, there wasn't any statutory guidance. There was little case law authority uh, to give judges a sense about how they should view these cases. Uh, judges wouldn't go as far as to say that companion animals are the equivalent of children and that we need uh, to consider psychological best interests. But I'm sure there were a lot of judges that understood that companion animals aren't inanimate and that they're a part of our everyday lives. But they weren't really prepared to adjudicate these cases 20 years ago um, without that kind of guidance from the legislature. Today, I think it's very different. The cases that I'm reading from all over the country are showing judges who are very deliberate about these decisions. They're reflective about these decisions. They're considering factors that not 
to, that go not just to the well-being of the animal, but to the family uh, as a whole. And we've even seen cases where these matters have been decided on what's called a protracted basis. In other words, the judge has heard testimony over a period of one or more days just because he or she wants to make the right decision. All of these things, I think, are indications that the law is evolving in the right direction. Uh, I would not be surprised, Dr. Peter, that by, I would say, you know, in the next five years, you're going to see at least five or more states follow the direction of the state of Illinois. And when that happens, I think more of these divorce statutes are going to be amended, and uh, there will be more guidance um, as judges across the country look at these cases and look at what we need to do to make the right decision. You know, Animals Today, we've been on the air for, this is our 10th year, and even in that relatively uh, quick time, uh, we've witnessed so much progress in how the law regards companion animals. Are you familiar with what's happened in the state of Connecticut, which is now permitting animal advocates to enter the courtroom to speak on behalf of animals. I am, and, you know, I follow your program, I listen to Dr. Lori, and I um, follow very closely these types of developments because I think when, because I teach in law school and I teach um, at a medical school, um, I'm meeting young professionals um, who are very much interested in issues about social justice. They're interested in public interest. They're interested in human and civil rights. And I think this is all, you know, obviously a very encouraging thing, given all the discord uh, that we read about every day. And when I see states take a progressive um, stance and allow advocates to come in on behalf of animals, let's say they are animals from a circus or, you know, animals that have been abused, and allow the courts to be educated by um, individuals who have dedicated their lives to the best interests of these animals, I think we're going to get a, a, a more perfect justice system. And, and that is the ultimate goal, isn't it, after all? Okay, Mark, any concluding thoughts? Illinois is, um, in my opinion, um, doing the right thing. Um, the wording of statutes uh, may be dealt with in another day, but the overarching purpose of this new legislation, I think, is a great sign for our society as a whole and for the animals that we love so much. Thank you for having me, Dr. Peter. Oh, thank you so much. That's attorney Mark Mamjian. Look him up. He spells his name M-O-M-J-I-A-N. Is that right? Armenian all the way. Okay. And you're listening to Animals Today. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the platypus and specifically about two intriguing features of this peculiar creature. The bill of the platypus, described as being smooth to touch with the feel akin to suede and is flexible and rubbery, is used to scoop up its meals such as worms and shrimp from the muddy floors of streams, ponds, and lakes. As the platypus lacks teeth, gravel is also taken in at the same time, so its grinding plates can pulverize the food into small digestible bits. But the bill may be even more interesting for the specialized sense organ it has. Thousands of microscopic electroreceptors detect moving prey by sensing electrical activity associated with their muscle contractions. 
The skin of the bill also contains numerous mechanoreceptors called push rods, which are thought to aid in the animal's ability to detect and judge the direction and distance of moving prey. There's still much to be learned about how these sensors work and interact in concert. Another noteworthy aspect of platypuses are the venomous spurs on the heel of each rear foot in males. They appear to be used to fend off rival males during courtship and mating. So as cute as these creatures are, mine their spurs, because the venom they can inject is nasty. It will cause immediate, extreme, and long-lasting pain, which curiously is impervious to the pain-relieving effects of morphine. Its constituents are still being figured out, but one chemical lowers blood pressure, and another looks to be a neurotoxin. Consider yourself warned. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to the show. Peter, it's International Polar Bear Day, which is February 27th, which is today. I didn't know there was such a thing. Yep. And in honor of International Polar Bear Day, we're going to learn some facts, and I'm going to give you a quiz. Okay. Didn't expect that. I know. Pop quiz. You like these. I do like these. Polar bears live at the periphery of the northern polar ice cap in the Arctic Circle. It's one of the coldest places on Earth. True or false, polar bears are also found at the South Pole and the surrounding Antarctic region. Oh, I think that's false. That is false. Okay. What, what animals found there at uh, the South Pole? Penguins? That's right. Mm. So the polar bear's population is on the decline, and they are considered a threatened species. True or false, hunting is the biggest threat to polar bears. Oh, I'm going to say false. It is false. You know, so unlike some of the other at-risk animals, Mammals such as the tigers and rhinos, hunting is not the biggest threat to the polar bears right now. Now, they used to be heavily hunted from the 1600s right through to the mid-1970s, but then strict regulations and quotas were agreed internationally to protect the survival of the species. Now, having said that, Peter, they're still being hunted and poached for their meat and fur. And in the areas where polar bears are found, like Alaska, Canada, Russia, and Greenland, and Norway. Each of these countries either banned hunting or established rules for how many polar bears could be hunted within its own boundaries. Mm -hmm. I find it odd that the polar bears are a threatened species, and yet they're still allowing some hunting of them. Well, you may find it odd, but nothing surprises me. Well, yeah, that's true. So they're still being hunted and poached, but not as much as they used to be. So in addition to the poaching, what is said to be the biggest threat to polar bears now? Is, is climate change. That's right. And oil and gas exploration as well. Oh, yeah. Global warming is adversely affecting the polar bears by causing the rapid melting away of Arctic ice sheets, and they are their floating homes and hunting grounds. Studies show polar bear litters are also decreasing in size because of sea ice decline. Many scientists believe polar bears could be gone for most of their current range within 100 years. I'm not even that optimistic. Today, there are an estimated 20,000 to 25,000 polar bears living worldwide. So, Peter, around the age of four or five, the female polar bear can start having babies. They usually have only about two cubs, and they have these babies in a cave they've dug in a large snowdrift. They stay there over winter and come out in spring with the babies. When first born, how much would you guess the polar bear cubs weigh? Mm. A little more than a pound... Seven or eight pounds, like size of a human baby, I guess. 
or 50 pounds. Oh, how about seven or eight pounds? False. False. A little more than a pound. Oh, they're little. Which is about the same weight as guinea pigs. And little interesting fact here, baby polar bears often starve. In fact, 70% do not live to their third birthday. Peter, in the wild, polar bears can live up to the age of five years, 25 years, or 50 years. Okay, I'm going to say 25 years. That's correct. Okay, I was just guessing on that one. Now, the adult male polar bear may grow 10 feet tall and weigh over 1,400 pounds. Females reach 7 feet and weigh 650 pounds. Well, that's a big size difference, bigger than I would have guessed. Yes, and how a large animal can produce a cub that weighs just over a pound. Yeah. Okay. True or false, the polar bear's fur is white. I'm going to say false. It is false. You're pretty tricky on these, but explain. Okay. Polar bear's fur is not white. Each hair's a clear, hollow tube. Oh, that's right. I remember about the hollow tube. The fur reflects light, which makes them look white. Yes. The hollow fur also traps the sun heat to help keep the polar bear warm. So in addition to their hollow fur, which allows them to conserve heat, what else keeps the polar bear warm? Oh, you're asking me now? Yep. This is like a fill-in-the-blank question, no more multiple choice? Uh, they, they must be fat or bl- flat fat. They're well, that's true. They also have a four inch layer of fat underneath their skin and this prevents them from losing any of their heat. But in addition, this is so interesting, Peter, polar bears have black skin under their fur oh. and the black skin soaks up the sun's heat and helps them to stay warm. I did not know about that black skin. That's very interesting. Isn't that interesting? Uh-huh. Polar bears primary food source is... Okay, I'm going to say... Yeah. reindeer, seabirds, or seals. Seals. All of the above, but primarily seals, is mm. correct. Yes. Polar bears have a pretty good sense of smell, and they can smell a seal one kilometer away. Wow. And what they do is they crouch near ice holes for hours to pounce on the seals as they come up. Yeah, you know, I know the circle of life and everything, but you see those pictures or the videos where they actually get the seal. It's a little tough to watch. Yeah, I don't, I don't watch that. But I read that less than 2% of polar bears' hunts are successful. Wow, that's, that's surprising to me. Yes, and because seals are their primary source of energy, they hoard the fat accumulating during the hunting season, which enables them to survive without food for up to nine months. Mm. True or false, polar bears hibernate. It's true. No, they Ugh. don't hibernate. Female polar bears will den with their young, and all polar bears may den for a short time to avoid bad weather. But not hibernate. That's right. Mm. Polar bears clean themselves by swimming, by licking and using their paws to help them clean, much like a cat does, by rolling in the snow. Oh, I say all of them. Actually, swimming and rolling in the snow. After feeding, they'll usually wash by taking a swim or roll in the snow. How relaxing. True or false? Polar bears are excellent swimmers. Yes, that's true. The Latin name actually means sea bear. Oh, that's cute. Oh, have you seen those videos, those underwater videos of the bears swimming? It's really, they really are good. Yeah, They just love it. Oh, those are adorable. And they, they can comfortably swim at around six miles per hour, and they can swim up to 100 miles at a time. Mm. And the front and back feet are shaped differently, and they will use their front feet to paddle and their hind feet to steer, much like oars and rudders. Interesting. And their paw pads have these rough surfaces which help polar bears from slipping on the ice. 
And Peter, another feature about their fur I forgot to mention, polar bear's fur is oily and water repellent, so it allows them to shake dry after swimming. Okay. So there, we just learned a lot about the polar bears, and again, happy International Polar Bear Day, which is February 27th. And Laurie, did you see the story of the macaw from Brazil who had this damaged beak and what the scientists are doing for him? Yeah, I think I read something about that. This is the most amazing thing. You know about 3D printing. Yeah. And uh, 3D printing has is being used to help animals, tortoises with damaged shells. You can make a 3D shell and glue it on there. This macaw was rescued and had a very, very damaged beak. A lot of it was just missing. And this group of engineers and veterinarians fashioned a beak made of titanium, right, using... 3D printing. Did you know you can print metal with a 3D printer? Well, that technology is now around. They sort of... That is the coolest thing. They utilize powdered titanium, and then they just layer upon layer, laser it, and it builds and builds and builds. And the shape and contour of the beak is determined by 3D modeling, of course. And then it's the cutest thing. They've got it screwed into the stub of the natural beak with these cute little titanium screws. And he's got this beautiful titanium beak. And, you know, the macaws need a beak to be able to exist. And so now they've uh, fashioned this. It's really the coolest thing. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back. You probably heard that Delta has recently announced new guidelines for air travel with service animals or emotional support animals. Turns out that Delta carries over 700 animals a day, so you know there are going to be some unhappy incidents. What can airlines legally do to provide access for those with legitimate needs while avoiding chaos, abuse, bites, and mistakes? To explore all this, I am very pleased to welcome back Diane Balkin, Senior Staff Attorney with Animal Legal Defense Fund. Welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. Okay, Diane, so there have been a lot of postings and comments about this new policy from Delta. Uh, What does the policy state? Well, basically, it goes into effect on March 1st, and now anyone traveling either with a service animal or an emotional support animal must notify the airlines at least 48 hours in advance and fill out certain paperwork. The paperwork for the service animals, particularly service dogs actually, is much more limited. All they have to provide is a statement that the animal has received and is current on certain uh, vaccinations. For emotional service animals, it's a three-step process. They have to jump through three forms. One is the veterinary health form that has to be completed and submitted showing that they have received a rabies and a distemper vaccination. The second class of animals are the emotional support animals, and they have to jump through hoops before they can board a plane with their animal. And the documents are as follows. One, a veterinary health form indicating that the animal has received its rabies and distemper vaccination. 
Number two, that the individual, the human bringing the animal on board has been seen by a licensed medical or mental health professional that is able to certify that the animal handler or owner has a mental health related disability listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and that that individual is under the professional's care. That has to be signed and dated by the mental health professional. They do not have to disclose the nature of the disability. And three, they have to confirm, the owner, that the animal has been properly trained. They have to indicate that the animal's been trained to behave in a public setting and takes the direction of the owner upon command, and that they understand if their service animal acts inappropriately, that animal may be considered to not be acceptable for air travel, could be denied boarding, or could be removed from the aircraft, and that is filled out by the actual owner. And this has to be done, as I said, 48 hours in advance of traveling. Okay, so these are real big changes, and so uh, one could understand all the hoopla about this. Uh, Before we go on, just uh, briefly remind us about uh, the difference in service animals and emotional support animals. Sure. A service animal actually performs services and tasks that the owner cannot perform or is restricted in performing. And these animals are typically considered not to be pets, but actually working dogs. And these are most commonly seen with people who are um, visually impaired, hearing impaired, have seizure disorders, etc., where the animal actually performs a service. Emotional support animals are really pets that provide comfort for an individual suffering from psychiatric or emotional conditions. Okay, so that is interesting because if someone just claims that they're a little anxious and the animal helps them feel a little less so on the plane, that may not cut it anymore because you now need to get, if these uh, regulations uh, hold up to scrutiny, um, a letter from a certified professional. So this really raises the bar. Right, and Actually, I think the ability to bring on board an emotional support animal contemplates that the individual has some life-limiting disability that causes them to not be able to perform normal tasks, that has a serious impact on their life and their ability to interact socially, etc. Okay, so what regulations or rules uh, now govern practices concerning animals that are brought onto planes. I know there's the ADA and then there's another regulation, the Air Carrier Access Act. What do they state? The three primary federal provisions include the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, and actually this only covers service animals. It does not cover emotional support animals. Then we have the Federal Housing Act, which indicates that a landlord cannot discriminate against an individual if they have a disability that requires them to have a companion emotional support animal, and they can't be refused regardless of the size or breed of the animal. And the third is the Air Carrier Access Act, which governs how commercial airlines have to treat individuals with 
disabilities that want to bring an animal on board, and that applies to both service dogs and emotional support animals. So the airlines are now claiming that things are getting much worse in the past few years with uh, bites and animals making mistakes and being and barking, etc. Isn't Delta and United for that matter, they just uh, announced similar rules when they had to deny an emotional service peacock entry. Um, Aren't they justified to uh, take some serious actions here? I think it's a challenge for all airlines to, number one, interpret the current federal regulations under the Air Carrier Access Act and balance them considering the disability of the individual who has the animal as well as the other customers on board, making sure that any flight is free from fear or a lack of safety. Right, and that is going to be an interesting uh, debate. Not long ago, we covered a news item where where a passenger was bitten in the face, and uh, we really didn't hear more about that. I suspect it was uh, settled uh, quietly, but who wants to deal with that if you're just an innocent passenger? Right, and there are people that are clearly abusing these practices by bringing their traditional pet on board because they know if they bring their pet on board as an emotional support animal, they don't have to pay for the transport of that animal within the cabin of the plane. Now, bear in mind that people can bring their pets on board just traveling with them. They have to purchase a seat. They have to jump through certain hoops as well. But we're talking about people that might be abusing the system by trying to travel for free with their animal. Now, the requirement to get all your papers in line 48 hours before the flight, that might be particularly uh, difficult for a needy individuals who need to, let's say, travel in emergency. Correct. I think that uh, a person with a disability not traveling with an animal does not need to give notice to the airlines 48 hours in advance. It is only if they are traveling with either a service dog or an emotional support animal that they have to give this notice. And it is reasonable to mandate this in order to make sure that the airline can accommodate the person with a disability. And the analogy I would draw is that there are people with disabilities that have to plan for electric wheelchairs being on board or oxygen, et cetera, that also have to give advance notice to the airlines in order to be able to be accommodated. I also have to believe that in an emergency situation, an airline could use their discretion to accommodate a person with a disability traveling with an animal. Okay, that seems reasonable. So how does this process now play out? What can we expect in the public forum? Well, if the numbers of animals traveling as emotional support animals and service animals is as high as Delta has indicated, then we may see a change in the number of people traveling, but it might still allow for people to bring on board animals that aren't true support animals, but those that have literally jumped through the hoops to get the proper paperwork. What's concerning is the availability on the internet of a pet owner to apply online to register their animal as either a service dog or emotional support dog or therapy dog, when in fact no such certification is required either federally or by any state in particular. So you can literally pay 
like $79 to $179 to get a vest, a certification, a photo ID, etc., that look totally like your animal is credentialed. Yeah. One of the first things we need to address is the abuse of these provisions. And I think it is incumbent on people using the system to their benefit are really using it to the detriment of those truly suffering from legitimate disabilities. So I really want to get the word out there, please don't abuse this because you're just harming people that truly need it. One of the concerns that's raised by uh, individuals who are flying now with an increased number of animals in the terminals and on airplanes is what happens if you or your child have an allergy to cats and the support animal is a cat, what does the airline have to do to accommodate you? Well, the law clearly states that they have to accommodate the person with a disability that has the animal, and so they should strive to move the individual with the allergy to a different seat on that plane and even, if necessary, to a different cabin. And if that is not available, they should certainly offer the ability for the person affected to get on a subsequent flight with no additional charges at all. Mm. This would be true as well if you happen to be sitting next to an animal and you are fearful of that species or you're fearful of dogs or fearful of cats. They have to be cognizant of the safety of other passengers as well as the person with the disability but have to accommodate first the person with the disability. The other thing that's interesting now is that we're going to start seeing, and Delta has implemented, is they are now creating a list of animals that are strictly prohibited. Mm. Because in the past, we have seen turkeys, snakes, spiders, rabbits. Pigs. Uh, yeah, pigs, goose, mm. kangaroo, yeah. and of course, the attempt with the peacock. Uh, I think we're going to see the enactment of rules and regulations that will be considered by the accessible Air Transport Advisory Committee, which is comprised of representatives from airlines, advocates for the disabled, and those knowledgeable in federal law, to create better parameters to allow passengers to travel safely in the skies. And this might include prohibiting certain species, um, definitions of emotional support animals, etc. Oh, it's going to be so interesting. That's Diane Falcon, Senior Staff Attorney with Animal Legal Defense Fund. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Peter, I heard a song that I haven't heard in years, Mm -hmm. and I can't get it out of my head. Okay, that could be good or bad. And why are we talking about this? Because it has an animal in the title. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So I want you to guess it. Okay. Foxy Lady. (laughs) The first word of the title of the song is rock. Rock. Lobster. Right. Okay. (laughs) By whom? The B-52s. Exactly. When's the last time you heard that song? Yesterday. Really? I like the B-52s. Oh, okay. I've got one of their CDs, maybe two. I saw the B-52s not 
long ago at the Hollywood Bowl. And, Without uh, me? Yeah. It was really good. Fred still got his cowbell. He doesn't move as much as he used to, but it was really fun. Is he heavy or just old or both? Well, we're all getting older. He looks pretty darn good, I have to say. Yeah. Well, I have some of the best songs ever with an animal in the song title. So you're going to guess. I hope it's from my era. It is. Okay, good. So you're going to guess the name of the song title and who sang it. Mm. Okay, ready? Shoot. The name of the song is a sleek fish with an elongated body, Mm. a mouth full of sharp teeth, and they resemble underwater torpedoes. Oh, shark, shark, porpoise, sharp teeth. Okay, let me know. Barracuda. Oh, Barracuda. By? By heart. Good. Okay, next. Large prehistoric-looking reptile that are found throughout the world's hottest tropical regions. Mm. Large. Large. Oh, alligator. Crocodile rock. Ah, very good. Crocodile rock. Bye. Good, good, okay. Okay. This animal is a wild carnivorous mammal of the dog family living and hunting in packs. First get the animal. Mm. Yeah. Then you can get the song title. Wolf. Right. Wolf. Hungry like the wolf. Yes. Good. Okay, Duran Duran. Very good. You're good at this. Just stay in this zone. Like nothing more recent than 1995. It's not. They're not. Okay. The males of this species may learn 200 songs in his lifetime. In addition to bird songs, these animals have been heard to mimic frogs, insects, and even non-animal noises such as car alarms. Oh, uh, let's see. Um, they are robins? No. That's um, a good guess. No. Um, a parrot? No. Um, toucan, macaw. Uh, uh, Can I tell you where it starts with? Yeah. M. That doesn't help okay. me, sorry. <laughs> M. Is it a bird? Did you yes. say bird? It's a bird. It has bird in its name. Oh, mockingbird. Good. Oh, yeah. oh boy. I know that uh, James Taylor yes. and Carly Simon. Good. Were, did they write it? Yes. I don't, oh, wow. Good. Wow. That was a good one. The weight of this bird is less than a penny. <laughs> That's a hummingbird? Yes. And that's a song? Yep. Oh, I don't know anything about that song. Seals and Cross. Oh. Oh, yeah. Remember now? Mm-hmm. The word pinniped means fin or flipper-footed and refers to the marine mammals that have front and rear flippers. This group includes seals, sea lions, and... Seals, uh, sea lions, and... Walruses. Oh, yeah. I am the walrus. Very good. Okay. Bye. By the Beatles. Is that the Beatles or Paul McCartney or John Lennon or do you know? You know what? I just assumed it was the Beatles. Mm. Let's ask Yoko. But don't ask her to sing it. No. There are about 59 different species of this bird throughout the world. Large birds of prey and mm-hmm. excellent vision. Yes. Fly like an eagle. Very good. By? By Steve Miller. Very good. Yeah. That's right in the sweet spot of my, uh, of my song knowledge. Scientific name of this animal is Procyon loader, Mm. means washer dog. Washer. Although it is a closer relative to the bear family. Oh, is that like a beaver or a... Close. Or an otter? No. No, A a raccoon? Yes. Oh, Rocky raccoon. Very good. Bye. (laughs) Same thing. 
those beetle people. Okay, the beetle people. <laughs> Large oceanic bird starts with the letter A. Albatross. Very good. Bye. Ooh, I don't know that song, Albatross. Oh, that's, I have no, no idea. Fleetwood Mac. Okay. In 1962, the controversial book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson was published, right? I remember that. It documented the adverse effects on the environment of the indiscriminate use of pesticides. Yep. She noted threats to some birds like eagles and other raptors, but she warned that one of the most common American birds, this bird, was on the verge of extinction, and hence the title, since these birds would be silent and wouldn't be singing. What bird is this? Bird that sings a lot. Like Rob Robin? Yeah. Uh, she, I didn't know she talked about Robins. That was the name of you know her book, Silent Spring, uh-huh. indicating that uh-huh. the pesticide would kill all the Robins and oh. spring would be silent. Oh, okay. Now it makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I think I, I, think I read that too. Oh, Rockin' Robin. Bye. Okay. Bye. I'm going to say the Jackson 5. Very good. Okay. A small, like two to four inches, ground-dwelling member of the squirrel family known for their burrowing habits and love of nuts. Gopher? Um, are you a... It's a good guess. Um... (laughs) High voices. Oh, chipmunk. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that, that was a good clue. Okay. Chipmunk. By the... Oh, that's the name of the song, Chipmunk? Yeah. Mm. The Chipmunk song by the Chipmunks. Okay. okay. <laughs> is, it like, is that like a, a theme song to their cartoon or something like that? Or? Probably. These animals are semi-aquatic rodents named for their musky smell and rat-like appearance. They're known mostly for their destructive burrowing in ponds, streams, and dams. Okay. Is musky smell a hint? Not muskrat. Yes. Oh. Muskrat love. Very good. Bye. Yes. By uh, Captain and Tennille. Yep. Yeah. That was a funny duo right there. Was that like a one hit wonder? No, they had a they had their they had a run of uh, those those sappy, funny little seventy songs. Yeah. These animals have a head called mantle mm-hmm. surrounded with eight arms called tentacles. Eight. Well, eight is octopus. Very good. And? Octopus. Octopus's garden. Yep. Bye. Those lads from Liverpool. Very good. Okay. These animals are primarily exploited and abused as farm animals, mainly for their wool and meat, and to some extent, their byproducts like cheese and milk. Oh, uh, sheep? Yep. Sheep. Sheep. There's a sheep from Pink Floyd, isn't there? Yep. Okay. You got it. Yep. I like that one. What animal does the president pardon every year the most ridiculous White House tradition? The turkey. There's a turkey song. Yeah, there's a turkey song. Turkey. um, I can give you another hint. Okay. When you abruptly and completely stop taking a drug you're addicted to. Oh, you go cold turkey. Yes, bye. Cold turkey. I don't remember that one. I know. John Lennon. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Peter, unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you a B minus for today's quiz, but there'll be another one soon. So until then, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 